I would ask you then to turn in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes to us from Paul's letter to the Galatians, as we will be looking at Galatians chapter 5 and verses 1 to 6 this morning. Galatians chapter 5 and verses 1 through 6. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Please then hear with me the inerrant and inspired Word of the Lord. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Well, as we began our study in Paul's letter to the Galatians months back, uh, Paul began by, by reinforcing the fact that he was an apostle appointed by God right, in defense of his ministry against those Judaizers who were attacking him. And so what we've seen in the first two chapters was something like an autobiography. Right? It was very autobiographical. Paul goes into detail about his calling into the ministry He goes into detail about his early ministry. But after he establishes his credentials, he turns his focus then upon doctrinal issues. right? Important doctrinal issues that have arisen in these churches that we've read about in in, in chapters 3 and 4. And the big issue there was the matter of what? Uh, Justification. If you recall, prior to the penning of this letter, uh, in Paul's first missionary journey, He preached justification by faith alone in Christ alone to these saints. And initially, they believed, didn't they? But as soon as Paul left, what happened? Right, Judaizers crept in behind him, now bringing a a new doctrine of justification. But it was a soul-condemning doctrine, wasn't it? It's one that mixed the grace of the gospel with the works of the law and taught that justification came by faith and works. And so, Paul has spent much time laboring over the issue of justification. He has spent much time reteaching the doctrine because he was desirous that these saints right, understand and, and know the truth. The truth being what? Well, that ultimately all people fall under one of two categories, don't they? You, you are either those who are justified by grace alone and by faith alone in Christ alone, or you... You stand opposed to Christ. You are condemned because you have rejected Him either by your outward denial of Him or by your rejection by seeking to add other things to Christ. And now as we pick up here in chapter 5, now we are pivoting to a new section and we see that although the first two chapters were autobiographical, chapters 3 and 4 were theological or doctrinal, these final two chapters we see are are much more practical. They're much more practical. What Paul now desires to show us is how that doctrinal truth that he has taught us is to shape our lives. Because it is 
to shape our lives, isn't it? Right? That's why we are given doctrine to shape our lives. But that order in which he teaches those things is, is not inconsequential, is it? Right? He moves from what? From doctrine to practice. Right? From doctrine to practice. This is why it's, it's so disheartening, isn't it? Uh, when you talk to maybe individual Christians who say, yeah, I, I just don't care that much about doctrine. It's just not, I don't see it as, you know, that important. Or, or you hear about churches, right, who, who don't teach doctrine because they don't believe that people want to hear it or they don't believe that, that people need to hear it. But that idea is, is something that is foreign to the Apostle Paul. And do you know why? Right, because Paul understood that what you know, right, Paul understood that, that what you believe shapes everything that you do in your life. It shapes everything that we do. Right? Doctrine then drives practice. Right? We can never forget that. Doctrine drives practice. Right? What you believe about God, for example, shapes how you worship God. Right? If, if you believe that God is just kind of a, a bigger, better version of yourself, then that's the way that you're going to approach Him. Right? Your, your approach to God, the manner that you come to Him, is going to reflect that. It's going to reflect it. That's why so many people approach God as if they're just approaching anyone on the street. Right? They approach Him in a very uh, cavalier manner. Right? Why is that? It's because they don't know God. They don't understand who God is. That He is perfectly holy. That He is majestic in nature. I mean, all you've got to do is, is look back at you know, the Scriptures and the theophanies. Right? God's appearing in the, the, by the bush fire, clouds. What, what did men do when they seen that? They averted their eyes. They fell down before God and they worshipped Him. Right? And so we see that what you believe about God right, shapes how you speak about Him. It shapes how you pray to Him. Right? It shapes how you worship God. And so it's, it's so sad when people want to just kind of dismiss doctrine or show a lack of concern or care for, for knowledge because what you are saying to God is is God, I don't really care what you have to say about how I am to think and act in every area of my life. Right? That's what we say to God. But that's dangerous. Right? That's a dangerous thought to think. I mean, remember what we read in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. For lack of knowledge. And how many out there today in this country and abroad lack knowledge? Right? They, they lack knowledge of the one way of salvation. Right? They, they lack knowledge of the person and work of Christ. They lack knowledge of their own sinfulness before God. And for many, it's not because they don't have access to this knowledge. It's because they just don't care enough. Or they've been told that, that this knowledge isn't important. It doesn't matter. But let us see, brothers and sisters, that it's that lack of knowledge that has brought the Gentile converts to the place that they are today, which is on the brink of abandoning Christ and by submitting themselves to the law of Moses. And just as I said earlier, all people fall under one of two categories, right? justified or not. Right? There's also two categories that we also could attribute to all people, and that is slave or free. Right? Slave or free. What does Paul say? That, that those who seek to submit themselves to the law are slaves to it. Why is that? Because as we've learned earlier in the letter that 
that all who submit to the law are bound to keep everything that the law says. But this is why now Paul then is trying to get the saints to see uh, that they are free in Christ. Right? He wants them to understand that reality so that they would live in accordance with that freedom. Right? He doesn't want them to live as slaves. He wants them to live as people who are free. Right? Free not because of what they did in the keeping of the law, but free because Christ fulfilled the law's demands on behalf of His people and so set us free. And so this is what we see in our text today. Right? And what we want to look at then is, is what Paul says God's people have been set free for. Right? What we've been set free for. And we'll look at that uh, in three points this morning. And the three points are this. Uh, first, we are set free for freedom. Set free for freedom. Second, we are set free by faith to hope. Set free by faith to hope. And third, set free to love. Set free to love. So point number one, set free for freedom. Look at verse one with me once more, please. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Christ, by His once and for all sacrifice, has made us free. And so Paul says what? He says, be free. Right? Maintain your freedom. Act as free people. Now, as people living in the United States, this shouldn't be that hard to us, should it? To, to comprehend that? To understand that? Right? In this country, right, we're a country that loves our freedom, don't we? What do we say? America is the, the land of the free and the home of the brave. And yet that freedom that, that we love is not the freedom that Paul describes that, that Christ gives. The freedom that we love is, is the freedom that says, stay out of my business. Right? The freedom that we love is the one that says, uh, I'm free to do whatever I want. Right? The, the freedom that we love and that we see in our society today is, is, is a man saying, I have freedom to, to, to be a woman. And you must accept it. Or I'm a woman and I have freedom to be a man. That's the, that's the freedom that, that people want to have in this world, but, but that's not the freedom that Paul's talking about. That's not freedom that's, that's rooted in the Holy Scriptures. Right? Christ has won us freedom. That is for sure. But it's not freedom to do you. It's not freedom to, to do what you please, what you desire, what you will. Right? We've been doing that our whole lives prior to Christ and, and look where that has gotten us. Right? Our whole lives prior to Christ, we've been doing what we wanted to do all the while thinking ourselves free. And yet now, right, with the indwelling work of the Spirit, we've discovered that the whole time that we thought that we were free men and women, in fact, we were slaves. Right? Unbeknownst to us, we were, we were enslaved to the power of the devil. Right? Everyone who's not united to Christ by faith is under the sway of the devil. Paul says this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Right? Naively, when we thought we were free people prior to coming to Christ, all the while, though, we've been enslaved to sin. Right? All that time prior to Christ, sin had its dominion over us. 
This is why Paul can say in Romans 3, you know, verses 10 to 12, no one's good. No, not one. None are righteous. Right? Why? Well, because of, apart, of, apart from Christ, right, apart from faith, no one is able to, to please God. And so the freedom that we once thought we had, the freedom that this world thinks that they have, ultimately is no freedom at all, is it? Oh, it's slavery. It's, it's bondage. The freedom that we need to maintain then is not an autonomous freedom to do whatever we please and desire. But rather, the freedom that we need is, is a freedom that removes the devil's grip upon our heart. Right? The, the freedom that you and I need is a, is a freedom that shatters sin's reign over us. Right? The freedom that we need is one that, that makes us free from the, the wrath and the eternal condemnation of God. That's the freedom we need, but that's only a freedom that is provided to us by Christ. It's only a freedom that we receive in Christ. Everyone in this world is born a slave. It is only the Son of God who will make you free. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And let us see that true liberty, that true freedom comes from one man's sacrifice, from one man's obedience, from, one's, from one man's works, and from one man's merits, and that is not your own. Right? What does Jesus say in Luke chapter 4, verse 18? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Let us see this though. That any any of you here today, if you want that liberty, if you want that freedom, you first have to acknowledge that you're a captive. You have to acknowledge that you're a captive. Right? You have to acknowledge that I am someone who has been sold under sin to, and I'm in bondage to it. Right? But this is something we must know. Right? You have to know this. You have to know this doctrine about man before you can act. Right? You have to know these things before you can bring yourself before the tribunal of God. And declare yourself to Him, guilty sinner. It is to these that Christ declares, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is to those, those who know they are captives. And what Christ will do then, He will set you free. He will set the captive at liberty. But the freedom that He gives is a spiritual freedom. It's a freedom from spiritual bondage, a freedom to now not serve ourselves, but a freedom to, to serve God now freely. Right? A freedom to, to come to God now as our Father. A freedom, brothers and sisters, that we must understand, though came at great cost. Right? It, it came at a, at a great expense. This is why Paul exhorts the saints in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23, you were bought with a price do not become bondservants to men. And so it's that freedom that we must never compromise. 
Right? It's this freedom we must maintain and hold on to, remembering what Christ endured for you and I to have it. This is why Paul says, freedom, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore. Right? He's saying remain in it, persevere in it. Right? He's telling the saints in the churches of Galatia, don't allow the Judaizers to pull you back into slavery by drawing you back under the yoke of the law. You are to defend, defend that spiritual freedom at all costs, even if it means losing your life. Now, in this country, we really don't have to worry about that, do we? But in the first century, you did. I remember when we went through our study in the book of Revelation. All that the, those saints had to endure, right? say Caesar is Lord or die. Right? Think about even the time of the Reformation. Right? How the Christians had to fight to maintain their Christian liberty, renouncing so much that, that Rome was, was having them do and saying, if you, if you do not confess this, if you do not do this, you will be punished for it. Right? Calvin said, Christian freedom is one of the most important doctrines connected with our salvation. Why? Well, because slaves aren't sons. Right? Slaves aren't sons. Only those who are free, having been rescued by Christ, are. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 36, So if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. As you sit here today, are you able to say that? Right? Can you sit here today with a clear conscience and say, by the power of God, the work of Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit, I am a believer who is free. Do you know how you know that you are? Because freedom transforms. Right? Freedom transforms your lifestyle. Freedom transforms your thinking. Right? Freedom transforms your heart. Right? Because you now have a heart that cherishes that freedom. Right? That freedom from the guilt of sin and the sting of death as Christ came and destroyed the works of the devil. A freedom that now sets you free from the doctrines and the commandments of men and everything that's contrary to the Word of God. A freedom to now obey God's Word and obey God's commandments, but not out of a slavish fear, but rather out of a a childlike love for your Father. Having a willing mind now doing it in holiness and righteousness that you have been given by God through faith in Christ. What a glorious doctrine Christian liberty then is, isn't it? And yet, brothers and sisters, how many are lacking it? How many Christians out there don't understand this doctrine and live as slaves in the world? And what that does is ultimately it's going to lead one astray. So I want us to see it starts with one doctrine. And then it snowballs to more and more and more until you are led into apostasy. It doesn't happen all at once. It happens incrementally, slowly, little by little by little. Here in Galatia, it started with circumcision. Gentile converts, you must be circumcised. This is why Paul writes, what next? Right? What next is it going to be? 
And so he says we are to to stand fast in liberty. Look with me then, please, starting at verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. This leads us then to our second point this morning, which is set free by faith to hope. Set free by faith to hope. Here what Paul does is he, he brings these Gentile converts right, face to face with the grim reality of now where they stand, right, where they find themselves. Now, many people, if they read this text, they might say, well, well, what's the big deal? Right? Why is, is Paul so upset that they are trying to get these saints to be circumcised? I want us to see the problem isn't so much circumcision itself. Right? The problem is the way that the Judaizers viewed circumcision. Right? They viewed circumcision as a, as a religious rite that was, that was something that was necessary for the Christian to do to be able to stand before God and have that right standing being justified before God. Right? So they, they viewed circumcision in the moral law as a means of justification alongside of Christ. As one author says, circumcision is the seal of the law. He who willingly and deliberately undergoes circumcision enters upon a compact to fulfill the law. To fulfill it, therefore, he is bound and he cannot plead the grace of Christ for he has entered on another mode of justification. See, the Christ of the law. And so Paul here is writing to dissuade the saints from being circumcised, not just because circumcision was a dead ceremony, what I mean by that is, is that it was a ceremony that wasn't useful anymore. Right? It belonged to the old covenant, not the new. But he also seeks to dissuade them because circumcision has become a deadly ceremony. Right? One by which they are seeking the favor of God. And Paul says to use circumcision that way is to have Christ be of no advantage to you. Right? No advantage at all. Right? Paul says in Romans 5, that it's through one man's obedience that the many will be made righteous. And so we will be cloaked before God in Christ's righteousness because of His obedience. Or you can try to stand before God cloaked in your own righteousness and your own obedience. Right? But you cannot have both. And you cannot mix both either. Right? Because Christ's obedience is perfect. Your obedience, my obedience is not. Right? Paul is telling these saints, you will have Christ as your perfect Savior or you will have Him not at all. That you cannot have Christ on your terms. Right? You can only have Christ on His terms. Right? The only recipe to reconciliation with God is the satisfaction that Christ made. Right? There is no ingredient that we can add to the recipe Right? There is no works that we can add to what Christ has done that will ever merit us anything with God. And in fact, when we try to do that, what we are saying is that Christ's works were never enough. They were not enough. This is why Paul says it in verse 4, You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. 
Isn't this a mistake that, that many people make? Perhaps today it's not circumcision. Or it's not the keeping of the law of Moses. But people every day are, are substituting things in their place, aren't they? Right? Some people hold on to their baptism. Right? You talk to someone and you say, you know, where do you think that you will be when you die? And they say, well, I, I believe I'll go to heaven. Well, why do you believe that? Well, I was baptized once. So they hold on to their baptism. Some people maybe hold on to the fact that they walk down an aisle at an altar call. So you say, on what grounds do you think you will enjoy eternal felicity with God forever? And they say, well, I walked down the aisle once. Let us see, brothers and sisters, that we can never, though, be justified by things we do. By being baptized, by walking down an aisle. Those things cannot justify you. Right? It's all Christ or it's nothing. Right? If you seek to add any of your works in the mix, you have forfeited Christ. Right? That's what Paul says. You've, you've fallen from grace. Now I want to spend a minute here on that phrase, you've fallen from grace. Um, we as Reformed folk understand that you, you, you can never, someone who is truly saved can never fall from the grace of God, right? But that's not due to us, is it? No, it's due to God. That, that God is a, is a God who saves to the uttermost, right? He's a God who perfectly saves His people. Um, it's Jesus who says what in, in John chapter 6 verse 39? This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing that the Father has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Right? We have Paul's statement, that golden chain of redemption, Romans 8 verse 30, those He predestines, He calls. Those He calls, He justifies. Those He justifies, He's going to glorify. Even later, excuse me, in, in chapter 8, we're told, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And so we know that someone who is truly saved will never be severed from, from the grace of, of God. But what then does Paul mean here when he, when he speaks about falling from grace? Well, the answer is this, that grace can be understood in one of two ways. Uh, first, it can be understood in the judgment of God. And that belongs to believers alone. Right? In, the, in the infallible knowledge of God, God knows you are under grace. Uh, but grace can also be understood a second way, and that is in the judgment of Christian charity. Okay? When someone comes to the church, and you talk to them, and maybe they tell you their testimony... Right? We are charitable to them, right? We, we believe their testimony until they, they prove otherwise. But, but our judgment is not like God's judgment, judgment is it? Ours is, is fallible. His infallible. And so they, they fall from grace, Paul says, not because they were once under God's grace and then the next day are not, but rather they fall from God's grace in the sense that they fall from the grace that they said was theirs, but they demonstrated it never truly was. Right? They fall from the grace that they said God had given to them, but was never really real because God manifested to us that they never had His favor to begin with. Also, we might say that they've, they've fallen from grace in the sense that they have renounced the only way of justification by faith. And they have exchanged it for justification by works, which is utterly incompatible with grace, isn't it? 
And so in that way, they've, they've fallen from grace. But I ask you this, what worse place is there to be in, in the world than one who is severed from Christ? Right? What, what worse place can one be in than, than severed from Christ? Right? We must all ask ourselves, today, am I standing upon the unshakable rock of my salvation? Who is Christ in whom I can never fall from? Or am I standing on sinking sand? And you can know the answer to that by saying, well, who is my confidence? Lion. Does it lie in myself? Right? Or in Christ? What Paul says is that for those who derive confidence in themselves, you can never have assurance. Because the one who is always working, the one who is always trying to do the law to be justified, is never sure if they've done enough. Right? This is a, then a, a freedom and a confidence that only the people of God can have that the unbeliever cannot have. Right, look at what Paul says at verse 5 once more. For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Right, Paul says it is by Spirit-wrought faith where our hope of righteousness lies. Right, what he means when he says we eagerly await the hope of righteousness is that by faith we, we eagerly await the fulfillment of our salvation. Right? We, we eagerly await that day when God declares that verdict not guilty. What it means is that our hope and our acceptance on that last day is not in ourselves or in our works, but it's in Christ by faith alone in His perfect imputed righteousness to us and nothing else. And it's the Spirit's indwelling presence that assures us of these things. And it's hope, Paul says, because it's something we have not yet seen, right? The the day, that final day, has not yet dawned. But we can be sure already, as we live now, of its outcome. Because by faith we have believed the promise of God. And so we know we have that hope of righteousness. It's certain to happen. But let us see, brothers and sisters, that Paul doesn't say it's by works, but by faith. He says, not that we are working for it, but what does he tell us to do? We eagerly wait for it. You don't work for it. You wait for it. It's not about doing, but about receiving. That is how the Christian has a good conscience before God because it is God by His Spirit who assures us that you are at peace with God. Not just now, but forever. The believer then has been set free from fear of that last day. This world, and sadly many Christians, they want to put off the return of Christ, don't they? Right? Because they fear it. They don't know what will become of them. But the Christian has been set free to, to cry out to, to, to the Lord, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Right? Because we know that on that day when Christ returns, what will happen for us? That we will be vindicated before the entire world. Right? That's a freedom that only believers have. Right? Because we know that the God who justifies the sinner Right? We'll, we'll bring it to bear. Right? The, the God who, if, if it's God who justifies, who will ever be able to bring a charge against God's elect? The answer is no one. And God will not listen to it. He will not hear it. For it is God who has chosen you. It is God who has granted you faith to believe. It is, it is God, by the work of the Spirit, who, who perseveres you in that faith until the end. And we can be sure that God is going to glorify Himself by making sure that you are not lost in the process. 
This, brothers and sisters, is why we ought to desire to be under the grace of God, to be near Christ always. But we can only hope to do so by faith. Right? By faith. This leads us then to our third and our final point, which then is, is set free to love. Set free to love. Look with me at verse 6, please. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. False religion plays on man's pride, doesn't it? False religion exalts man. It flatters man. False religion seeks to diminish your own sinfulness and and elevate your sense of worthiness and to elevate your sense of capability. Right? False religion is not humble but haughty. It is one that places a heavy emphasis on the external and the outwardly. Right? This is why the Judaizers are, are placing such a heavy emphasis on the external markings of the flesh. But now Paul comes along and says circumcision doesn't even matter. Wow, think about how shocked the Judaizers are to hear that. But why does he say that? Because he's, he's trying to get the Gentile converts to understand that in Christ you have everything you need. Right? That nothing you do can approve upon your standing before God. Right? That's what Paul wants them to understand. And how do you apprehend Christ and all of His benefits? By faith. But what we also need to understand is though that faith that, that God gives to man is not one that's static. Right? It's not one that sits idly by. Right? But here's the difference between false religion and true religion. Right? False religion is a religion that acts for self. Right? True religion acts towards others. Okay? False religion says, what must I do to receive something? A reward. I must do this so I can get this benefit. I must do this so I can feel this kind of way. Right? True religion, the Christian religion, is not like that. It's a self-denying religion. So that the faith that Paul promotes that is worked in us by the Spirit is a faith that works. Right? But it, it works towards others and is not consumed with ourselves. Right? True religion then is not about self-love. True religion is about love of God and love of neighbor. That is true religion. But even that is a freedom that you and I at one time did not enjoy. Perhaps some of you grew up in church. Perhaps some of you as adults went to church and were not yet believers. And as you you prayed and you came to church and you did all these spiritual exercises, you did it out of sheer duty. Even children who are here today, Perhaps, you know, you listen to your parents' rules and commands, but you do it out of, out of a feeling of though burdensome, it's burdensome to you, right? You, you don't like to do it, it's, it's tiresome to you, right? But by faith in Christ, we have been set free to serve God cheerfully and willfully and gladly, and a part of serving God is serving others. A part of loving God is loving others. The primary way faith shows itself is love. Right? The primary way faith will show itself is love. When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? What does He say? To love God. And then secondly, what? To, to love our neighbor. 
And I ask you this, who demonstrated a faith that works through love more than Christ? Right When Christ was on this earth as mediator, right, He believed His Father's promises perfectly. When Christ was here on earth, he, His faith was working through love in the sense that He sought to glorify the Father in everything He did. Right? Sought to, to, to not do His own will, but the will of the Father. Right? It was that faith working through love that sent Christ to die upon the cross for you and I. Right? Because Christ didn't go to the cross for His own sake. Right? He went to the cross for, for our sake. And what love is there like that? Right? What love is there like that in this world? I mean, think about our own love. What does our own love look like? Right? In this church, it's easy maybe to, to love some of the saints and not others. It's maybe easy to love those who you have you know, hobbies in common with or who are in your age range or you know, who have children the same age as you. Maybe it's easy to love those people, but what about everybody else? I want you to think about this. Think back to, to John chapter 13. What happens in John chapter 13? It's there that Jesus washes the disciples' feet. The Son of God gets on His hands and knees to wash the feet of sinners. And do you know who was among them whose feet He washed? Judas. The Son of God, the Son of glory, on His knees, washing the feet of the man He knew was going to send Him to the cross. Helped to send Him to the cross. He washed the feet of Peter, a sinner who would deny Him three times in one of His, his darkest hours. Right? It's that kind of love that we are to exhibit, but it's that kind of love that's lacking in the church, isn't it? I ask, is that kind of love lacking in you? Is that kind of love lacking in you? We need to understand something. It's very important that the church is not the place where just elders and deacons serve. Church is the place that we all come to serve. Primarily, we all come to serve God. But secondarily, we come to serve one another. Right? That is why we have come together. And not just by words, not just serving one another by words. That oftentimes is associated with, with dead faith. Right? What does James say in James chapter 2, verses 14 and 15? Right? When, that, when that poorly clothed brother comes to, come to them and you say to them, uh, be warm and, and go in peace. That's not faith working through love, is it? No, faith working through love is, if you're able to, right, giving that brother exactly what they need or, or at least trying to help them to provide those things for themselves in some way. Right? Faith working from love is, is not a faith that comes to church and as soon as the service ends wants to sneak out the back because you don't want to be burdened with talking with other people in the church. Right? A faith working through love is, is not a faith that it talks to someone and they tell you something that they need prayer for and you tell them, I'm going to pray for you, and then you never do. Right? That's not faith working through love. Faith working through love is a faith that's concerned with other people, not just yourself. Right? Faith working through love is, is, is taking time to get to know other people, to demonstrate that love that you 
have for them. Perhaps even to have folks back at your house to to share in the provisions that God has blessed you with with other people. I mean, we confess this, brothers and sisters, in, in our confession of faith. Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 11, verse 2. This is what we confess. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness is alone the instrument of justification. Yet, it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith but worketh by love. Now, I'm not saying that you've you got to be the last one out every Sunday. I'm not saying that every month you've got to have folks back to your house. I'm, I'm not even saying that sometimes you might have to slip out back really quick after the service ends for some reason. But what I am saying is, is can you say you are concerned with your brothers and sisters in the Lord? And it takes just small things to demonstrate that. But you need to invest in one another to do it. Right? You need to, to know what's going on in someone's life to be able to pray for them. Right? You need to know that someone's struggling with something to be able to encourage them with the Word of God. You have to know what's going on in someone's life that's praiseworthy, that you can right, rejoice with those who rejoice. And so I ask you today, how does, how does your faith working out in love in this church, amongst this body, in this local church, in, how about in the broader church? How about in the world? Right? Because we are to do good to all people. Even unbelievers. But Paul says, right, even more so to the household of God. How how does your faith working through love show in this local body? Right? We need to understand Christ came to, to serve and not be served. And so when we ask, what does my faith ought to look like? Whose works should my works ought to resemble? The answer should be Christ. And as we ask ourselves this day, does my faith look like Christ? Do my works resemble the works of my Savior? I think every single one of us here, including me as I stand before you, must say, oftentimes, no, they do not. There is so much for each one of us to improve upon. And yet, brothers and sisters, thankfully, thankfully in those times that we fail, and fail often we do, we can be assured that our sins have been forgiven by our Savior, Jesus Christ. That Christ has freed us from the law's rigor. Right? That we are saved not based on what we do, but saved based upon what Christ has done. And yet our constant failure our constant failure ought to be a hearty reminder of why every moment of every day we are to live cleaving to the cross, clinging to Christ and His merits and His works alone. Also, though, understanding that if you are a believer, the Spirit of Christ will never fail to produce faith working through love in you. And having been freed to be able to cry out to God as Father, then we ought to bring ourselves before the throne of grace and ask Him, Oh, Father, by the work of Your wonderful Spirit inside of us, increase, breed in us a greater love for one another and a desire to glorify You and be conformed in the image of Your Son and for the good of Your church. 
The Judaizers weren't working through love because their teachings were going to destroy these saints. The Christian's faith works through love because it seeks the glory of God and the good of God's people. The Christian love is faith that works through love because it points neighbor to God. It points neighbor to Christ. It points neighbor to the Word of God. Why? Because as one who has experienced that blessed freedom, there is nothing more that we want than others to experience it as well and to enjoy it in all of its fullness. Yet while understanding the whole time that the, the only way to receive it is not through works, but by being justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, and by the grace of God alone. Let us pray. O oh, gracious Father, Your Word is, is true. It lifts up our hearts in gladness, but it also convicts us. Uh, we thank You, Lord, that Your Word is, is profitable uh, for all teaching and correction and reproof and the training us up in all righteousness that we might be equipped for every good work. Lord, we come before You and we confess our sin. We confess our shortcomings. We confess that oftentimes we are unloving towards one another. That we too easily can grow frustrated and annoyed with one another. That we too too quickly uh, become consumed with ourselves and our own needs and and have a real lack of care and concern for the needs of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Lord, we pray that You would increase our love for for God and for one another. That You would increase our love for, for the saints. Why? Ultimately, because we see Christ in them. And we love Christ most of all. And yet, Lord, we pray likewise that You would cause us to to love and to express that love and show that love not only to to God's people, but to those outside of God's house, that, Lord, we would express that love to, to unsaved uh, children, spouses, maybe family members, friends, those whom we come into contact with, for, for it is your word that is the word of eternal life. It is your son that is the only hope for the sinner. And so, Lord, we thank you that that hope has been made ours, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.